Morning. How y'all doing? Good. Well, my name is Brandon Shiley, and I am the student coordinator here at Harrison Bridge. Um, if you have been here any longer than a week, you can tell that I am not Dallas. Um, I'm the substitute teacher for today, so congratulations to you guys. The good news is, though, you can count on me not going 10 minutes over. So we love Dallas, but he tends to go long. We love him for it, though. Um, but yeah, I'm just super excited to be here with you guys this morning. Um, whenever they give me the mic, though, I feel like I have to give students a shout-out since I am the student guy. So every morning during the 9.50 hour, our middle school and high school students, we meet right over here. Um, it really just is an awesome time um, for students to hang out together, but also just to dive into the Word um, with people who are their age. Um, it's proven to be a super meaningful time. So if you're interested in it, maybe just give it a shot one Sunday morning. Or if you have any questions, just feel free to come talk to me after the service. So yeah, these last few weeks we've been working through this series called The Crown, working through the life of David. And so if this is your first time here, or maybe you've missed a few weeks of this series, I'm just going to give a brief overview of what we have seen and what we have learned from David before we dive into Scripture today. So week one, we learn who David is. He's the shepherd boy whom God has specifically called, and we see next the story of him against Goliath. David the shepherd defeats Goliath the giant only by God's strength. God then makes it very known to David that you will be king over Israel. However, there is a current king who is already in place, and his name is Saul. And as you can imagine, Saul does not take this very well. Um, he's very jealous, and he goes immediately on the hunt for David in efforts to kill him. And what we see is that God's will always prevails. We saw this last week, that God was going to protect his person. And his person was David, the person he called to be king over Israel. So that's where we're going to pick up today. There's a lot in the middle, um, which I want to touch on. Um, in 2 Samuel 7, this is one of the most foundational passages in all of the Old Testament. Um, we're not going to be going over it today, but just to give you an overview, God um, tells David in this passage, this is called the Davidic Covenant, where he makes this promise that David, my son Jesus, this eternal king, will come through your line. And in the next few chapters, David is king over Israel. He actually becomes king, and he's on a roll. I mean, he is victory after victory, conquering the surrounding nations. He's just on fire. I mean, some may compare it to South Carolina football, just the way we're playing right now. I mean, on an absolute roll, 2-0. and Come on now, let's go. Um, don't ask me how we're doing next week. I'm not as optimistic, but we're doing good right now. Anyways, so David is on a roll, and this is where we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So you can go ahead and turn there to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Um, we're going to be working through chapters 11 and 12. And again, there's so much just slam-packed in these two chapters. So I'm going to give a brief overview of the storyline, and then we'll dive deep into Scripture. So in chapter 11, Israel is still conquering the surrounding nations, um, surely just by God's strength. Um, but this one day in particular, David decides to stay back in his palace. Um, we don't know if it was comfort or whatever, but he stays back, and that day we see that he goes up on the roof, maybe you can imagine a terrace, and he looks out over all his kingdom, and he sees a woman bathing on a roof. 
If you're like me, you're like, that's kind of whack. Why is a woman bathing on a roof? It was much more normal back then for that to happen. And because it was normal, uh, we really can't let David off the hook immediately saying it was just an accident. Like David probably knew standing on top of his roof at that time of the day what that was going to bring. But he sees this woman, and we don't know much about her, but we do know her name is Bathsheba, and the Bible says that she is very beautiful. And so David, he looks at her, and he wants her. And unfortunately, because he's king, basically at the snap of his finger, he gets her. And they commit this affair. And um, really, just turmoil sets in her. She's married. Um, so he doesn't know what to do with the husband, Uriah. It turns out that Bathsheba's actually pregnant. Um, so he's trying to cover all this up. He doesn't know what to do. Um, and it turns out at the end of the story, when all hope is lost, David decides to send Uriah to the front of the battlefield and basically just sets him up to die. And so that's the story for today. And in this, I think there are so many truths that can be just directly applied to our life. And the first thing I want us to see is that temptation is present. Temptation was present for David, and temptation is present for us today. So I'm going to start reading in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're just going to read verses 1 through 4. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. So the first thing I see here right off the bat is that David is not where he is supposed to be. It's made very clear that if you are a king, you are supposed to be on the field with your men. And so for David specifically, this was a God-given command. This was a God-given responsibility that he was neglecting. And it seems like he chooses comfort to hang out in the palace one day instead of being with his men. And truthfully, looking at this, I've been trying to figure out what I think the core of this decision was. And I really think he just becomes indifferent. Like, he just becomes indifferent to who God has called him to be. He becomes indifferent to the responsibilities at hand. And what happens is that this indifference leads to him being isolated. He's in the palace. He's by himself, just far away from all the God, godly men in his life. And what this is, this setting the circumstance has put David in a position where he's very open um, to being attacked by the enemy. And how we know this is in 1 Peter 5, 8, a verse you probably have all heard. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And immediately you're like, okay, don't get drunk anymore. Check. Like, no, this is a lot more to this verse. This verse, being sober-minded, um, directly correlates to being watchful. In other words, like, I need to always be cautious. I need to always be careful, be vigilant, be looking out. Let nothing cloud 
my judgment. Um, let nothing cloud my mind because there is a roaring lion and his main objective is to destroy and to see your life crumble and fall apart. And to me, this comparison, Satan to a lion, I just think is so spot on. Um, to be honest, this past week in studying for this, I spent way too much time uh, watching Animal Planet videos to like see how lions behave and stuff. And I got down this just absolutely nasty rabbit hole of like YouTube videos. Like all of a sudden I look up 30 minutes in and I'm watching like who wins? Lion versus gorilla, lion versus tiger, lion versus buffalo. And like super distracting but hilarious. Like I had a great time doing it. Um, <laughs> But in all that distraction, I did find some useful stuff. Um, and the one thing I saw is that lions, whether in a pack, whether by themselves, their main objective is to get the prey alone. And to me, that's just surprising. Like the lion, I feel like king of the jungle, you know, like can literally kill whoever, whenever he wants. But his goal is to get his prey alone. He's looking for the weak individual, looking for the person stranded from their pack, and he feels confident, a lion feels confident that when he can get his prey alone, he can destroy it. And I just find that so true with David. Even thinking about Satan, I can imagine Satan right now um, thinking that, man, David's such a godly man, how am I going to get him? But once David um, separates himself from his community, separates himself from the godly men, Satan then knew he had a chance, even against David. And what David ultimately did was he put himself in a bad situation to make a bad choice. And really, when you are where you shouldn't be, you are exposed to things you thought you'd never do. Again, when you are where you shouldn't be, you are exposed to things you thought you would never do. And that is why Romans 13, 14 says this, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So what is that saying? It's saying, like, don't even give yourself an opportunity to slip up. Don't even give yourself an opportunity to sin. Like, yes, temptation will come. Resist that. Sin will be appealing. Resist that. But don't even put yourself in a situation to where that becomes possible. Just like very quick application. For us, like, don't go on your phone at that type of night or on that time of the night when you know it's going to be very easy to watch stuff you shouldn't be watching. Like, don't hang out with that group of people. Don't hang out in that environment when you know you make the same, same mistake over and over and over again. Husbands, wives, like, don't put yourself in a position with a coworker where you know that maybe even if you don't mess up, those thoughts are running through your head. Make no provision for the flesh. And I feel like so often, you and I, we make these big New Year resolution type decisions. Like, you know what? I am done with this. Like, I'm never going back. You will not see me doing this ever again. But you and I, we never set ourselves up for success. We keep what I'm going to call these underground tunnels, like these secret avenues, to get back to our sin. Like you and I, we really don't know if life without that, whatever that is for you, is possible. So as much as we really do want to cut it out, 
we just leave this secret way to get back to it just in case I need it. And what this verse is saying is that you and I, we have to fill in these underground tunnels. We have to cut off, burn down the bridges of these secret avenues. Because in these moments of isolation, in these moments of indifference, when you're caught off guard, if there is any way possible for you to get back to your sin, you're going to choose it. And just FYI, like those moments of isolation and indifference, as much as I don't want them to come, they're going to. Look at David. David, this man, a man after God's own heart, the king of Israel, the person who God specifically chose, I want to establish my lineage through you. This man still went through isolation, still had those moments come up, and as strong as he was, he still chose sin. It's time to eliminate these secret avenues, these ways back to our sin. We need to see our sin. We need to see our enemy for who and what it really is. It's an enemy that is seeking to destroy us at all costs. So we see that temptation is present. But next we see that sin has consequences. Um, and these consequences, they are inevitable. Uh, we experience this all the time in life, like consequences that are inevitable. So I just want adults, parents, think back to when you were a senior in high school or a senior in college and put yourselves in my shoes. Right now, I'm in what you would call the quote-unquote senior slump. That means I don't want to study for anything. Like, motivation, gone. Brandon Shiley, you're not about to catch this guy in the library. Like, no shot. And what are the consequences of that? Bad grades. Like, Brandon Shiley's not doing as good as he normally does because I'm not studying. Those consequences, they're inevitable. They go hand in hand. And in that same way, sin and its consequences go hand in hand. We see in the story here that after David messes up with Bathsheba and finds out that she's pregnant, he doesn't know what to do. He goes to Uriah and he tries to convince Uriah to sleep with his wife. And he refuses. He says, there's no way I can do this if my men are out on the battlefield. So David, not knowing what to do, gets Uriah drunk. And this time, just really, really hoping that he is going to sleep with his wife to cover this up. But Uriah again says, there's no way I can do this. There's no way. And so David, again, feeling like there's nowhere to go, feeling like there's nowhere to turn to, he covers up his sin by putting Uriah on the front line and leaving him there to die. And then in 2 Samuel 12, 15, we see another specific consequence that God allowed David and Bathsheba's baby to die, a direct consequence of his sin. And what I want us, all of us, to see here today is that our sin and our sin's consequences stretch out further than just affecting us. Like, sin is that destructive. David's sin um, affected Bathsheba. Like, we can only imagine the guilt and the shame that came with such a sexual sin like that. It affected um, Uriah and, the, like, him murdering him. It affected the baby. The baby died. Like, sin affects everyone around you. And for you, like, your, your choices don't just affect you. They affect your kids. They affect your parents. They affect your coworkers, your friends. Like, sin is that 
destructive. And I think you and I need to sit in that weight for a little bit. But also, there are so many consequences for David personally. Um, if you look in Psalm chapter 51, this is David's prayer to God. And this is right after this. Like right after David messes up with Bathsheba, right after he covers it up. And in this prayer, we see three specific consequences that we're just going to fly through really quickly. In Psalm 51.3, David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. This phrase, my sin is ever before me, that means that's all David could think about. Like it was at the forefront of his mind. It's all he could see. The guilt, the shame that comes with sin was literally consuming his life. Physically, Psalm 51.8 says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Like, I really do believe this sin that David was experiencing affected him physically. Like, the type of guilt, the type of shame, the type of weight, that, like, you really don't even want to get up in the morning. Like, it makes it hard to function. It makes it hard to live. This was that type of sin. And then emotionally, Psalm 51.10, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Spirit here, that means emotionally. Like what's going on in David's heart. And it, what we need to see is that my sin, your sin, it affects the way we love other people. Like at its core, at its deepest, you felt this you feel like you can't love other people well. You, don't, you feel like you don't have the capacity to care about people because of this baggage you're carrying around. The same way with God. Sin steals our affection. It steals it. Maybe you're in this moment right now, you're so boggled down by sin, and you want to be close to God like you were, but you feel like something's holding you back. Something is stopping that fellowship. It's disrupting that affection. There's actually a lot more for us to see here. But I just want us to see the gravity of sin. And let us not forget the most important consequence of all. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Yes, death here physically, but eternal death and eternal separation from God. And that ultimate price, that ultimate consequence of sin, that's something that Jesus had to pay for, for me and for you individually. Like he took that wrath from God on himself. He bore that sin on his shoulders for me and for you. And I see that and I wonder how can I, like how can we keep cheapening sin and lessening the sacrifice which God has offered up for us through his death on the cross? How do we keep cheapening it? Because you and I, we just let sin big or small, we just let it pass us by like it's nothing. We forget that we are actually supposed to hate sin. Like you and I grow way too indifferent to it or way too apathetic. We just kind of get to the point where, you know what, this sin, we just have to kind of deal with it. Life is just this way. And what the Bible is saying is that's not how it's supposed to be. It says so many times, Hate sin. Hate that which is evil. Love that which is good. And I feel like you and I oftentimes are missing the mark for how we treat sin. 
We need to feel the weight of it. We need to feel the weight of the consequences that stretch out far beyond us, that destroy our insides, and also the consequence that Jesus himself had to pay for. So sin has its consequences. And because it's so weighty, because it's so heavy, the next point is accountability is necessary. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, we'll see what type of accountability David had to deal with. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew up with them and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or, or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. Then, uh, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. And to me, I don't really know of many more mic drop moments like this in Scripture. Like, just absolutely just laid the hammer on David. Nathan tells this story of a rich man and this poor man. And basically the rich man could not give up anything. So he steals from the poor man. And David, he basically tricks David into condemning himself. And this right here, this is the root of what sin does. Sin is blinding. Like David... He's not just like acting dumb. He's not just trying to play it off. He's genuinely oblivious that he did such a great act, that he did such a horrific act. He was blinded by his sin and his sin nature. So Nathan is the one who had to come alongside of him and call it out. But this is what I respect the most about David. David um, doesn't respond poorly like most of us would, like Nathan definitely made him feel a little dumb, like he probably went about it in a pretty rude way. But all we see David do is cry out in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Like that's his response. He fessed up just like that. And to me, what a just sweet, humble spirit David has in himself. But I see that today. And I look around and I wonder, who is your Nathan? Like, who is the person in your life that you have given specific permission to, to speak hard truth to you? Like when the red flags pop up to when sin is in your heart and you can't see it yourself because sin is blinding. Like, who is that one person? Who are those few friends that you have who can speak into your life? And for some of us in this room, I know maybe you don't have anyone you're really close to at all. Like, I've seen the stats, and I've seen how the older you get, um, the less likely you are to have close friends. And again, now, obviously, like, I'm not a parent. I'm not a dad. I'm 21 years old, so, like, I'm not really in your stage of life for most of y'all. 
Um, I'm, the, I'm in that stage of life, which you can look back on, where I'm living with three of my best friends in a dorm room. Like, we're almost too close. Like, they got to take a shower, and I got to brush my teeth so we can both make it to the 8 a.m. Like, that type of close. So just think back to that. Um, I'm sure most of y'all remember what it's like to have a close friend. So again, I don't know where you're at now, and I can't speak from experience, but I did read and look up some of these stats, and these were in a book called Them by Ben Sass. And really the argument he's trying to make is that the number one health crisis in America is not cancer, um, it's not some physical ailment that you would think of. The number one health crisis in America is loneliness. He really talks about men here, and he says that we stop making friends once we're married and we have kids. Like, we'll have the occasional conversation at the ballpark with another dad, but really, we don't have those close friends. At least we're done making them. The stat I see, too, is that one in five men, 20% of men, would say they don't have a single close friend. And that stat for women isn't too far off of that either. And so what Ben Sass, the author, what he's saying is that sin, yes, it affects our physical health. And he says this quote, which I think is so good. He says, isolation turns something dangerous into something deadly. Again, isolation turns something that is dangerous and turns it into something that is deadly. And yes, while that is true for our like, physical health, how much more true is that for our spiritual walk with Christ? Like, yes, temptation is hard enough in itself. Like, in a room full of believers with the closest community, when temptation comes, like, that's hard. Like, that's hard to fight against. How much harder, how much deadly is it to fight it by yourself? Who do we have in our life who we're close enough to that when those red flags do pop up, when they see something in us that we can't even see in ourselves, do you have that one or two or group of people who can speak hard truth in your life? Because repentance can only come through brokenness, and brokenness can only come through awareness. You and I can't be broken over our sin if we don't know what's actually going on, on the inside. So do you have people to call that out in you when sin has blinded us to that fact? So accountability is necessary. But lastly, I want us to see that restoration is available. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, it says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. And yes, while sin, it has its earthly consequences, and its earthly consequences are inevitable, that biggest consequence, the wages of sin being death, that is something that Jesus has already paid for. Again, he took that wrath and he took it on himself. So you and I didn't have to experience that. I mean, he took it on himself so you and I could stand before God one day as righteous and so we can pursue an intimate relationship with Jesus right now. Like, because he has paid this price, you and I in our brokenness, in our shame, in this weight that we feel, can actually come before Jesus 
boldly. We can come before Jesus with confidence that he is near. And David, even in the midst of what is one of the worst sins we see in the Bible, he leads the way for what restoration looks like. He leads the way in what restoration looks like, despite the worst of brokenness. He cries out to God in Psalm 51, God, give me this new spirit. God, return to me the joy of my salvation. God, clean my heart because I am just so broken and such a mess without you. And if you were sitting here today and maybe um, you have a relationship with God, maybe you have no relationship with God at all, but you walked in here and you're feeling right now really, really far away. You've walked in here with a lot of guilt, You've walked in here with a lot of shame and baggage, and you feel like there's no way you can come before God. You've walked in here after a week of making the same mistake over and over and over and over again, and you've now convinced yourself, there is no way I can get back to where I used to be. Like three years ago, man, my walk with Christ was good, but now there's no way I can get back there. There's no way I can earn that favor back. Too much has happened to me. And if that is the spot you're in today, like that's actually an okay spot to be in. That's reasonable thoughts to be thinking. David was thinking the exact same thing. But what I love is that the end of David's prayer, um, this is how, after all the sin, after all its consequences, after he's so broken, this is how he cries out to God. In Psalm 51, verses 16 through 17, him talking to God. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And what David says is basically, God, if there was anything I could do to make it better, if there was any outward action, if there was any sacrifice, if there was any checklist of things I could do to work my way back up to you, to earn this favor back with you, God, I would do it. I promise. But David, knowing God, he knows that's not what Jesus is looking for. And that, that is good news. That there isn't this massive checklist to work our way back to God. But the one thing we see from David is the one thing that God is looking for. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Like God right now wants you in your brokenness. Like God, all he wants from you is a broken, humble, repentant, willing heart. And again, that is the best news for everyone who walked in these doors today. That no matter the baggage, no matter the hurt, no matter that you keep, you put yourself in these awful situations and you keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again and you've lost hope, like you've given up, there's no reason to try anymore, the good news is you don't really have to try. You just have to give God your heart. Give God your brokenness. Give God this willing heart. Let him have all of that this morning. As you leave here today, yes, you need to set up the guardrails. Yes, you need to have the accountability. You need to have the Nathan that can speak into your life and continually point you back to Jesus. But right now, 
Maybe you just need to be aware and broken and repentant over your sin. Maybe just right now in this next song, you need to cry out to God like Jesus did. God, make in me a new heart. Restore to me some sort of joy. And I'm confident that Jesus is going to meet you right where you're at this morning. Um, Let's pray. Uh, God, we just love you so much. And I'm just so thankful for who you are, Jesus. God, if there is someone here today who is, is feeling the brokenness, God, is feeling the baggage, is feeling the consequences of sin, Lord, I just pray that right now, in their brokenness, they would run to you, they would look to you, and they would just cry out to you, God, clean me, restore me, make me whole. Lord, if there's someone who walked in here today who has no relationship with you, God, I pray again that same prayer over them, that they would call out to you. They would start that relationship with you because you have already paid the ultimate price for them. God, bless this next song. Lord, help just work in our hearts, God, moving us. We love you, and we just ask this in your son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.